the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Thanks, Dan Rice. Today we're going to share a classic interview with Alan Ayler. He's the author of How to Make a Big Decision Wisely, or rather Big Decisions, a Biblical and Scientific Guide to Healthier Habits, Less Stress, and Better Career and much more. We're also going to talk with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the effort to win Georgia's Senate races. There are two of them by bringing in out-of-staters to vote. We'll find out whether or not that's legal, what the penalty is, and how likely it is it could succeed this time around, as some um, influencers are suggesting that that's precisely what they need to do. Well, taking a look at some of the the national and local headlines, more than 2,600 ballots in Georgia's Floyd County that have have not been tallied were recently found during a recount in the state for the 2020 presidential election, according to reports. Well, Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, he blamed the problem on Floyd County election officials failing to upload votes from a memory card in a ballot scanning machine. Now, Georgia began recounting its early or rather nearly 5 million ballots by hand on Friday after President Trump and the Republican Party requested a statewide audit. Well, the 2,600 previously uncounted ballots in the county marked the most significant issue so far uncovered in the recount process. Floyd County Republican Party Chair Luke Martin called the mishap concerning, but insisted that it doesn't appear to be a widespread issue. I'm glad the audit revealed it, and it's important that all votes are counted, Martin told the Atlantic Journal-Constitution. Other counties so far have not found uncounted ballots, with recount figures closely matching their original numbers. Though the president has decided uh, and rather decried alleged voter fraud, the accounting uh, accounted ballots will likely do little to close the 14,000 vote gap with president-elect or presumed president-elect Joe Biden. In other developments, so the president has seized on a local Nevada race to raise suspicions of wider problems, and Hannity slammed the Georgia GOP governor and secretary of state over his recount decree, saying they seem completely clueless. Jonathan Turley says that Trump's election challenges are uh, long on allegations and rather short on evidence. And the Washington Post editorial board has called to abolish the Electoral College. Bill Himmer has called out to media's love fest following another Biden press conference. Fox News uh, anchor Bill Himmer called out the reporters. On Monday, Biden made remarks about how his administration will handle the economy, but then took a handful of questions from pre-selected reporters, which were mostly focused on President Trump and his refusal to concede the election. The Bill Himmer reports anchor, he offered his reaction immediately after Biden left the podium, saying, you've been watching um, uh, what amounts to a bit of a love fest here between the media and the presumptive presidential Nominee. Well, during a panel discussion with Washington Post columnist Mark Thiessen and Democratic strategist Mo um, 
Elithi, Hemmer uh, offered a sampling of what was asked by reporters. By my count, Mark, here were the questions. If the president doesn't give up, what are you going to do, Hemmer said. One reporter called it unprecedented blocking of the transition plans. Another question, will you get the vaccination? What did you think about the president's tweet on Saturday? Another question as to whether or not families should get together on Turkey Day. Reporters have long been criticized for how they questioned the then-Democratic candidate on the campaign trail, specifically when Biden was asked what the flavor ice cream he got at the campaign stop instead of being pressed about the controversy surrounding his son, Hunter Biden. Wow. Biden's campaign manager is headed to the White House as deputy chief of staff, and Jake Tapper deletes a tweet boasting how CNN journalists survived the 2020 election. Biden says public health experts have recommended 10 people max at Thanksgiving gatherings. And Laura Ingram, she shares the hard truth with uh, Biden, saying insulting Trump supporters will only incite more violence. Biden denounced all acts of violence after attacks on Trump supporters at the Million MAGA rally. Pelosi, however, remains silent. Senator Susan Collins says voters rejected Bernie Sanders' far-left agenda, calling for a moderate compromise. California authorities insist that people stay home. Meanwhile, they're escaping to lavish getaways in Hawaii. Lawmakers are reportedly descending on a week-long policy conference in Hawaii as the Golden State urges its citizens to refrain from travel and indoor gatherings. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, the Independent Voter Project, or IVP, which is hosting the conference, declined to name the fewer than 20 lawmakers who collectively came from California, Texas, and Washington. The conference is taking place at the Fairmont Keelanai in Maui, where rooms reportedly run $600 a night uh, with policy discussions and schmoozing with corporate sponsors, the Chronicle said on Monday. Its website says the event is four days long and the purpose is to provide a setting away from the Capitol for elected officials and a diverse group of industry experts to consider policy matters in a nonpartisan manner. And how nonpartisan can you be in Maui? Well, news of the event came just days after the California Department of Public Health issued a travel advisory urging residents to stay home and not to leave their region. Californians are encouraged to stay home or in their region and avoid non-essential travel to other states or countries, reads the advisory from Friday. Avoiding travel can reduce the risk of virus transmission and bringing the virus back to California. It also recommends people returning to California be quarantined for 14 days after arrival. We'll see whether or not that happens. Well, the Hawaii conference was just the latest to raise questions about how politicians spent their time while directing citizens to isolate themselves. For example, Governor Gavin Newsom came under fire after attending a dinner party with his wife on November the 6th. The gathering included at least a dozen people and took place at an upscale restaurant in Napa Valley. Well, in other developments, Tucker Carlson says the elites want COVID-19 lockdowns to usher in a great reset that should terrify you. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has ordered a limited mask mandate and new COVID-19 business restrictions like so many others around the country. Governor Newsom has imposed new coronavirus restrictions after apologizing for breaking his own rules to attend a party. New York Governor Cuomo has been ripped for telling others to admit mistakes amid the COVID-19 nursing home deaths. And New York County says it won't enforce Cuomo's limit on Thanksgiving gatherings. Good Doctor star Richard Schiff, 65, has been hospitalized with coronavirus, for those of you who watch it. Operation Warp Speed scientific chief hails the exhilarating news of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine.
President Trump sought options to retaliate against Iran's nuclear program, including bombing Iran. And Obama's era budget controls have hurt U.S. military readiness against the growing threat of China, Russia and Iran. And an author is accused target of caving to woke activists by briefly pulling a book deemed transphobic on Twitter. Coronavirus mask protocol sparks a testy exchange between Senator Sullivan and Senator Brown. And Hurricane Lotta, a Category 4 storm, has made landfall on the Nicaraguan coast. An Antifa-aligned group cheered alleged arson at a police officer's home, and Twitter allowed those tweets. 50, or rather, 50 Cent, he addressed the Trump support debacle after being called out by Chelsea Handler, saying, whatever she says is fine. I'd love the interpret. We have the tongue. Now I'd love the interpretation on that one. Well, California is considering a statewide curfew amid COVID-19 surge, Governor Newsom says, and Warren Buffett's um, Berkshire invested in four pharma companies. So if you're looking for someplace to put your money, you might want to listen up. Elon Musk's Tesla is joining the S&P 500, and Congress faces a tight deadline for coronavirus relief and spending deals. Universal and Cinemark have reached a deal to allow films to premiere on demand early. San Francisco's mayor is asking people if it's worth it to celebrate Thanksgiving. And former President Obama wishes he had been tougher on China and labeled big tech a liability or rather their liability protections, untenable. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll come back in a few moments and continue our wind through some of the day's headlines. But I also want to remind you that coming up, a classic interview with Alan Ayler. He's the author of How to Make Big Decisions Wisely, A Biblical and Scientific Guide to Healthier Habits, Less Stress, A Better Career, and Much More. It's a Zondervan Reflective uh, book. We'll also talk with Zach Smith in the 5 o'clock hour, We'll talk about the effort to win Georgia Senate races by bringing in out-of-staters to vote, which is, as you would imagine, illegal. All of that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there are a couple of House races that are still going Republicans' way. Uh, Burgess Owens was one of the latest to win as his race was called yesterday. He defeated the only House Democrat in Utah. From Dave Wasserman, it's been almost two weeks since Election Day, and Democrats still haven't won a single one of the 27 House races in uh, uh, the toss-up column. From Jennifer Van Laar, she points out the Dems should take this as a sign, but they won't. And from the Wall Street Journal editorial board, Democrats are now brawling over the reason with progressives and swing state members blaming each other. Progressives uh, refuse to take any responsibility. A post-election memo from the left-wing justice Democrats warned Democrats against retreating from their position on culture and economics, claiming that their agenda drove turnout. It quoted a New York Times article saying the key is to link racism and class conflict. So it was a political tool wielded rather successfully. A new Republican House member, Victoria Sparts, was born in Ukraine and said, I grew up in socialism. I saw what happens when it runs out of money and it's not pretty. Again, a Republican House member. Well, states are increasing their lockdowns as public, uh, the public is growing rather weary. I guess that's not a headline I need to inform you about. In California, some lawmakers are calling for civil disobedience. A New York county says it won't enforce Cuomo's Thanksgiving limit. And from the Washington Examiner, unfortunately, the U.S. enters this season with the public health community having squandered its credibility with the American public. 
Early on, the American people were told that they had to go into lockdown for just a few weeks. The purpose, everybody was told, was to flatten the curve. So there wasn't a huge spike in cases at a given time that could collapse the medical system. The problem was that even after the curve had been flattened and the medical problem was that the uh, medical system was in no way in danger, officials for months lobbied against efforts to reopen activity. Flatten the curve was replaced by some vague notion of returning to normal when things were safe. Well, the American people are frustrated. Apparently, there's now an effort to impeach Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in another headline. Well, Biden may campaign to help Democrats in Georgia in the Senate race. Not a surprise, considering it would go a long way to allowing him to force his agenda through uh, with a majority in, or at least a tie in the Senate. Ed Morrissey points out the Democrats had the good fortune to tie up both Senate seats from Georgia into a runoff, although the Republicans in both races had the majority of the votes thanks to a record election turnout and a clear impulse against Donald Trump, pushing against Donald, or rather David Perdue's chances of winning his race outright. Don't expect that to continue, James Arkin reports, especially since both Democratic challengers are starting out behind the eight ball. Well, battles continued in close states. They found votes uh, that helped Trump in Georgia, though not enough to make a big difference. One story notes the office of Michigan's attorney general sent a cease and desist order threatening legal prosecution against an online news outlet for posting videos of alleged voter fraud. From another story, the a stack of Michigan lawsuits filed in the aftermath of the election is continuing to pile up with a new one in federal court seeking to toss out some 1.2 million votes in Michigan. And in the second part of his daily briefing, Dr. Albert Moeller examines the problems with the uh, way Pennsylvania handled late arriving votes. The daily briefing it's uh, certainly worth reading again, Dr. Albert Moeller. Well, California schools are banning books such as To Kill a Mockingbird over racism concerns. Uh, Ariel Davidson points out the stench of burning books will be the legacy of the woke left. And we were always told that it would be the right that would ultimately come to burn books. Teachers unions are leading the fight against schools opening, battling against the parents who are growing um, uh, to despise them. And Dow hits a record high, closing yesterday at a record of, on optimism that a vaccine is nearly ready. A story shocked the newly elected Republican uh, tried to uh, convert Jews to Christianity as if that was somehow not what a good Christian would do. Apparently this was headline breaking news story. And a company is selling fake hands for lonely men to hold. The story calls it a new Japanese invention aimed at single men. Uh, it simulates holding a woman's hand. I can't imagine what that looks like. Well, the GOP shows a limited appetite for pursuing Biden probes. Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson, both Republicans from Iowa and Wisconsin, respectively, who led a joint investigation of Hunter Biden this year, are signaling they will take a tough stance on the incoming administration. But other GOP senators are taking a wait and see approach. One of the considerations among Republicans is a desire by some to lower the partisan temperature and possibly explore common ground with Democrats on infrastructure, trade and other issues. Well, black former NFLer Burgess Owens flips Utah for becoming uh, the 12th GOP House pickup. And reparations advocate has tapped for the Biden team, Treasury, I understand. And a Biden transition official wrote an op-ed advocating free speech 
restrictions. Well, House leaders are urging Democrats not to join the Biden administration to maintain their majority in the House. And a Georgia recount unearths more than 2,600 uncounted ballots in Floyd County. Republicans have withdrawn lawsuits in Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. And a professor shows students how easy it is to hack a Dominion voting machine in a 2018 New York Times video. A CNN act anchor compares Trump's presidency to Nazi Germany, which is getting a little tiresome. The problem is the Democrats keep looking in the, at the mirror and believing it's their opposite, Sarah Hoyt points out. Um, Ilhan Omar is calling Trump uh, events Klan rallies, and Portland anarchists have attacked the Democratic Party HQ, and suddenly vandalism isn't cool anymore. Well, guilt by partial association, an Airbnb cancels a Trump supporter's account simply because they're a Trump supporter. And fans call for Mandalorian actress to be fired for an anti-Democrat post. A prominent leftist uh, YouTuber has called for the legalization of child pornography. Now, this is an interesting pattern that we're seeing, that while we might think this is a remote, isolated case, does have the potential to have broad implications for people who hold views that are not considered by those in power to be acceptable and certainly not worthy of expression. Well, governors are ratcheting up restrictions ahead of Thanksgiving, and even though it kills more than 480,000 Americans annually, the pandemic has people smoking again. Well, Chinese street fentanyl is surging in Western states, and the U.S. uncovered a half dozen Chinese military researchers lying on their visas in 2020. Mike Pompeo puts Iran on notice during a Paris meeting, and the Dow Jones has set a new record after promising vaccine news Thanks to Republican deregulation and corporate tax cut, household incomes increased more in 2018 than in the previous 20 years combined. Around the nation, 38 percent of Americans still planning a big Thanksgiving despite COVID-19 and non-copus mentis. Rick Band's sweatshirt, rather a sweatshirt, featuring a thin blue line patch designed by the daughter of a slain NYPD officer to honor him. Students cannot wear them. A Kansas school cancels Operation Christmas Child after the Freedom From Religion Foundation complains. And nearly 90,000 sex abuse claims have been filed against Boy Scouts of America. The number of sex abuse cases is still likely underreported. Paul Monet is a lawyer, a lawyer rather, who has been working on Boy Scouts cases for nearly two decades, told Actios he expects the total number of reported cases to be closer to 100,000. He's calling for a congressional inquiry into the scandal. Around the world, Hurricane Lada uh, hits Nicaragua as an historic Category 4 storm. Quebec plans to ban the sale of new gasoline-powered cars as of 2035. And Australia becomes a growing target for China's belligerence. Russia plans to build new base in uh, Sudan. Stranger than fiction, a man smashes a car through a grocery store and drives up and down the aisles, apparently just shopping. And a deer crashes through a window into a middle school classroom, and a wild boar is shot dead after breaking into a home and leaping onto the bed. Yeah, I don't think I would have survived that one. Well, on this day in history, 1800, Congress holds its first session in the partially completed U.S. Capitol building. 1869, the Suez Canal opens in Egypt. 1889, the Union Pacific Railroad Company begins direct daily railroad service between Chicago and Portland, Oregon, as well as Chicago and San Francisco. And on this day in history, 2003, Arnold Schwarzenegger is sworn in as the 38th governor of California.
Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear a classic interview with Alan Ayler, his book, How to Make Big Decisions Widely. We'll also talk with Zach Smith in the second hour of today's program. We'll talk about the effort to win the Georgia Senate races by bringing in out-of-staters to vote. And we have some pretty credible people who should know better suggesting that Democrats do just that. We'll talk more about it and what the penalties are for that kind of um, well, not just advice, but that kind of action that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, our decisions, according to our next guest, determine our future, our lives. If we invest in a company, for example, that goes bankrupt and you lose your life savings, that makes a big difference. Say the wrong thing in an interview and you miss the job of a lifetime. Make no decision and you miss every opportunity. In today's rapidly changing world, the cost of poor decisions, or no decision at all, is higher than ever. In his latest book, How to Make Good Decisions Wisely, author and scholar Alan Ayler He lays out a clear approach to making big decisions based on the Bible and recent discoveries in neuroscience and decision science. He presents a simple four-step process that can be followed to make any decision, any kind of decision, whether personal, professional, or relational. Making big decisions can rewrite your life, your career, your family, your church, business. A lot is at stake So you need to learn how to choose well. Well, Alan Ayler is a professor and uh, dean of the Barnett College of Ministry and Theology at Southeastern University, a former pastor and ordained minister with the Assemblies of God. He is a lifelong student of the science of decision making. He joins us today to talk about his book, How to Make Big Decisions Wisely. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Georgine. Well, it's very interesting that there is a science of decision making. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, there is. Well, I discovered this. There's a whole field, a lot of people that study it and research it in the secular academic world, and a couple of schools of thought with that. One of them that looks at doing everything on a quantitative basis, it's called game theory, and looks mm-hmm. at everything, trying to come up with some sort of numerical way to determine odds and outcomes, and so much of the business world is now bought off into that, but other people realize that more personal decisions happen in different ways, so there's a, a lot of different schools uh, of thought to take a look at how do we decide as well as how do our brains work when we make different decisions. Now, in your um, uh, the forward written by Leonard Sweet, he points out that so much of our lives is already chosen for us, our parents, our geography, our economics. That's why every choice we make needs to be a wise one. Uh, Talk a little bit about the importance of making good decisions, a variety of different types of decisions that have an impact on the course our life will take, the uh, depth and and, uh, quality of relationships that we're in, and so on. Well, if people make a bad decision, like you're pointing out earlier, career decisions going to affect options in the future, financial decisions affect what we can do. Uh, We've all had friends who ended up getting seriously involved in the wrong relationship or the wrong business partnership and and ended up paying a big price for them down the road. And a lot of times people pay big prices because they just go with their gut. It feels right at the time. You want to go with what you want and you don't think about the consequences that are Involved, or there's more to the story that you can't see at the beginning if you just make a quick decision. It's not always possible to have a lot of time to contemplate before a decision needs to be made. Uh, in the first part of your book, uh, it's titled Choosing Well, and you write about the challenge and opportunity of big decisions. 
Uh, how do we know when a decision has the potential to have such a big impact as opposed to those that if we get them wrong, isn't going to make that much difference? Well, I, I put a little grid in there. It's kind of like you imagine a screen that's going to catch the stuff that doesn't warrant the effort because I believe God designed our brains so that we make most of our decisions quickly, and that's good because we don't have enough time to agonize over every decision that we face. And so a lot of neuroscientists have discovered that the brains make quick decisions for a lot of things, but others that require conscious effort that we want to go through and take the time to consider all, all that's at stake where we've been, what does Scripture say about that. We, we save the big decisions for that. So criteria you want to look at are, is this something that I've done before that's worked well in the past, like the old cliche, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, okay, we don't have to worry about those. Things that don't have a lot at stake, not a lot of consequences there, or if it's really clear, already know what the Bible says, yeah, I'm not going to cheat on my wife, that's clear, that's, that's a no-brainer on that one. But when I get to things that I've never been there before, I'm dealing with new situations, new circumstances, a lot of things have changed, and there's there's a lot at stake, and that can be anything like my future, my relationships, my well-being, the people I'm leading, if I'm in charge of an organization, uh, a corporation, a church, a ministry, whatever, I've, I've got to take a look at that now that I can see making a bad decision now could end up costing us a lot, so let me take the time to go through the process and seek God's wisdom and be intentional about what I'm looking to do. How important is seeking the counsel of others who may be able to inform my decision-making process? That's a, it's a pretty big part of the process as we, we go down the road. I, I, I lay out several different times and kinds of decisions that really do better when we get other people involved, and there's the right place in that. Of course, we can think of several examples from Scripture and other places where there was a leader who knew and had heard, like nobody else was with Moses when he saw the burning bush and heard from God, and, and nobody believed him, and yet he had heard from God. And so if he had listened to the rest of the Jewish leaders around him, uh, they would still be in slavery today. But no, he sometimes God's going to speak to us. We've got to act. But I find that that is not in the majority of cases. So we need to be listening, and God has given us the people around us to to help us. You can look at the spiritual gifts that, that we see listed, like in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Most of those require more than one person. We, we as Americans, we love to have this one-on-one relationship with God, which is great, but God also put us in a relationship with other people. So if... if if, if God gives a prophetic word, the word of prophecy is given from one person to give to somebody else, not for the prophet, but for the people who are going to hear that. And we see that speaking in tongues comes with the gift of interpretation so that somebody else can be there. And there's also value, like you're pointing out, in listening to wisdom from others. And so, so a key part of this, my second step, trying to catch God's story, is listening to the community of believers around us to see what they have to say. In addition to uh, discoveries in neuroscience and decision science, you uh, make reference to what the scripture has to say about wise decision making. And in this same section of the book, um, you write about how the Apostle Paul made decisions. Talk a bit about what we can learn from his example with regard to decision making. Yeah, let's... I find that in the Christian world today, people tend to go to one camp or another on this issue of, does God speak to us? And and some people will say, you know, God should be able to give you direction for every decision you make, and it's just a matter of listening and waiting, and you're going to hear from God. And then there's another side that says, no, those people are weird. No, God gave us the Bible. That's all we're going to need. 
And so a long time ago, I started studying the life of Paul, first in the book of Acts, but then also integrated the study of his letters as well, and, and to see, did, they, did that back up one another, and what do we see in there? And the way Luke records Paul's decisions, and the way Paul records his own decisions in his letters and tells the church to make decisions, have an interesting mix of both uh, seeing God work miraculously in directions, sometimes in dreams or in visions, or Jesus appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus, but there's also specific wording that's used in there that Paul made up his own mind for a lot of decisions. And, and Paul went on acting out. In some cases, what I see happening is Paul was given his overall life mission to go out and, and plant churches and win disciples among the Jews and the Gentiles. And as he did that, sometimes God specifically spoke to him to tell him, this is where you're going to do it. This is how you're going to do it. But there's other times that he didn't have that clear direction, but he still had the overall mission. And so he figured it out, sometimes in part partnership with the, the people on his team, sometimes just simply going down the road and stopping at the next town and, and starting a church there until he received some kind of direction otherwise. Like it's interesting, when he was in, in Corinth, he was there for a while, and then he got a vision from Jesus encouraging him to stay longer there. It was like his pattern before had only been to stay for a few weeks in each city, but when he got there, then the Lord appeared and showed him and encouraged him, okay, I know you've been taken off all the time, don't do that anymore. And so if, if that's still true for us, if, for, if that was true for Paul, I should say, and he asked that to be true for the church, then for our lives, we need to be open and, I believe, earnestly seeking God's leadership, but not held hostage in its absence, because the vast majority of Paul's instructions in the Bible that he wrote in his letters to the churches don't say, don't do anything until you hear from God. He doesn't say that. He said, do this, do that, do this, do that, obey these instructions, and oh, by the way, here's some spiritual gifts that might occur, and oh, by the way, leadership from the Holy Spirit is a part of the whole spiritual Christian journey. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Alan Ayler. His book is titled How to Make Big Decisions Wisely, a biblical and scientific guide to healthier habits, less stress, a better career, and much more. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Alan Ayler, he is the author of How to Make Big Decisions Wisely. And who among us does not want to make big and small decisions well, because they always have consequences. Um, you make a tere- uh, connection between decision making and story shaping, as well as health. Can you explain that connection and how story shaping is an important element in making wise decisions? Yeah, thanks, Georgina. I use story shaping as the, the wording to describe the process if you want to make an intentional approach that I lay out the four steps, because we're all part of the story, the, but the story that we're a part of keeps going on. So we don't get to control a lot of the things. You don't get to control what family you're born into, what nation you are, what race you are, some of your your natural physical appearances, and some of the circumstances that you deal with. So because of that, you don't get to start writing a story from scratch. What you do, though, your decisions shape your story. They kind of shape the outcome. So I, I start the process by the first step of reading the backstory. That is taking a look at all the factors that are at play that that affect this decision, that affect the circumstances that will maybe produce different outcomes as we go into that process. So that's why I use that. And the, the, the wording there is to give us just kind of an idea. You shape it because it will be different with, with your action, even if you can't fully control everything that happens there along the way. 
Now, in reading the backstory, are you referring to my story or as uh, the backstory of the opportunity that I'm considering or all of that? It, it, all of that depends on what it is. So if you're making a personal decision, certainly part of you is, is taking a look at that. Like if you're considering a job, you know, you, your gifts, are your gifts right for that? Are your talents right? Do you have the right education, the right experience that they're going to need for the job? But then you also look at the backstory of the job, things like, okay, how, is, how have the other people who've worked there, did they enjoy working at this place? You know, so many people just look at moving forward and they don't take time to do uh, a little bit of research to mm-hmm. find out. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, everybody else who worked there left within two months because it's a miserable place to work, <laughs> and all you see is the paycheck. So taking some time to read the backstory can really help you avoid some bad decisions. Yeah, yeah. The next step you suggest is to catch God's story, to look for uh, biblical commands and examples that might help inform your decision. Yes, yeah, that's, as Christians, we hold the Bible to be our authority, and so we don't want to take other things we may think of as God's leading. If they contradict Scripture, we don't want to go that direction. So if the Bible's clear about uh, something regarding our decision, and it's clear about a lot of things, and we start with that, story's over, we do what the Bible says. But there are times that we can take a look at examples in Scripture that may not be a go therefore and do this, or thou shalt, or whatever, but we can take a look at the life of a Joseph or a Moses or a Jonah or a Peter or a Paul and, and see how they handle situations and look at the situations in our life and say, okay, is there something I can learn from this and apply in my own situation? The third thing you suggest in this, uh, this process is to craft a new story. And that would include, of course, making a decision that would change the course of a relationship or perhaps a career. Uh, talk a bit about uh, that third step, crafting a new story. Yeah, right. So when you get to done with a second story of catching God's story, you may have caught God's story, maybe from Scripture, maybe from that sense of leadership of the Holy Spirit or a, some sort of witness from the Christian community that, okay, this is it, you know what to do. Uh, but what I'm saying is sometimes that doesn't happen, and that's okay. Uh, you, you, you can go on. There are other things we can use to put into practice to help us make good decisions. And I see a lot of examples from the decision science world that I see also backed up in Scripture. There's times that the people in the Scriptures made decisions without having that clear, unmistakable guidance from God. And so I lay out a five-step process to walk through that. And the first one is to increase the number of options you're willing to look at. People tend to get stuck at one or the other, and it's either A or it's B, and we never realize there's C, D, E, F, G, all the way to Z, other options out there. And neither A nor B is a really good option. And sometimes we may not find the good option until we get down to letter K. And, and so we have to be willing to explore more. And there's a lot of different suggestions I give for that. Probably the most common one is brainstorming, but but there are a lot of other ideas that we can do, kind of dreaming and getting input from other people and begin coming up with some ideas. But once we make that list, then we want to narrow it. It makes them like, why do you want to increase a list and then narrow it? Because, uh, again, sometimes that dreaming is going to get us beyond what we call our narrow framing, that limited just Mm -hmm. one or two options. Now I can begin to explore more and I'm willing to look at some of the others. But then I, to weigh each of those is going to take more time. So I want to get it down to a manageable number, and it can be three, it can be seven, and maybe in some cases you are needing to look at 10 or 12 options. But you get them down there, and then you carefully evaluate those. You, you look at those, you look for quantitative measures, you study people who've attempted these in the past, taking a look at that, and as you do a further study on each of those options, usually one or a couple are going to rise to the surface as these are really better. And and then even if you have not yet 
narrowed it down to a single option yet. And you can go back to the chapter before uh, I start on the story shaping thing. I talk about these lenses that we look through to take a look at things uh, like our, our values. What do we truly, truly care about? Our ethics. What do we consider to be good and bad? Um, and, and then take a look at some of the other things there. What, what matters most is we uh, evaluate each of those decisions and ultimately make our decision. Of course, we're praying along the way. And what we may find is like uh, the apostles saw in Acts 15. And I love this passage because it, it started with a disagreement. You know, Paul was convinced that Gentile Christians didn't need to be circumcised to become Christians. Uh, and, and yet the Jewish believers from Jerusalem, they did. They had an argument. They got together, and they really walked through the whole process. They listened to the backstory of Paul's experiences, of Peter's experiences, of, of the perspectives of the Jewish leaders who felt like, no, 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 they got to get circumcised. And then once they did that, then they turned to try to catch God's story. They listened to Scripture, and then they wrestled through all of that stuff. And then at the end, James, who was leading the council in Jerusalem, makes this incredible statement as he writes the letter to to the churches make on their decision. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And in what they didn't have clearly in unity at the beginning of that meeting, they did by the end. They were in agreement with one another, and they had that sense of the touch of God. Yes, we know we've heard from God. Now, ideally, we get that by the time we make the decision, but sometimes we have to decide anyway, because, okay, it's in front of us. The, the day is now. I'm going to go. I'm going to make the best decision I possibly can, even if I don't have all the information. That fourth step in the process we've been talking about is to tell the news story. And I appreciate the the cautious approach that you suggest. For example, the chapters in that uh, that segment determine who needs to hear the story, be careful how you tell the story, make the story a reality, and then proofread. Talk a little bit about uh, that process of coming to a decision and moving forward. Right. So your decision you make is probably going to affect somebody else, unless you are living as a single individual on an island. When you make a decision, other people are going to be impacted. If you're married and you take a new job, guess what? It's going to impact your spouse, your kids if you have them. If you're leading an organization and you decide to, to change your software provider, even that's going to affect people. So once you make the decision, you need to figure out who is it going to affect and then how do you communicate with them? And there's some ways of communicating things, especially when something's been controversial. Like you're in an organization and everybody's all happy with things the old way, but you as the leader can tell, eh, we're not winning this market thing. We're about to lose. We're, gonna, we're not going to exist as a corporation if we don't change what we do. But everybody's comfortable. You have to let them know. You have to think about how you're going to communicate to them to, to motivate them to change. And one of the best ways to do that is to start with the why. Like Simon Sinek says, you start with, here's what you need to know is at risk. And, and so they understand there. And then you speak to things that they value and that they care about. Show them how, even though you think you're comfortable now, here's how you're not going to have a job in the future. Or here's how what we, what we enjoy now isn't going to be there if we don't change. And then come up with some nice ways for them to understand the process. Uh, sometimes change is, is complicated. And, and to do a good job at change requires a, a very complex plan but we can't remember complex. It has to be simple and it has to be memorable. So coming up with some sort of a model, some pictures, maybe a, a metaphor or something to help people go get the aha. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I tell you, we are out of time, but I would encourage our listeners to pick up the book to get the rest of the story, How to Make Big Decisions Wisely. Alan Ayler, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Georgine. Thanks for having me on your show. Appreciate it. By the way, the book is published by Zondervan. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, celebrities and politicians are urging people to visit Georgia and falsely claim residency for the sole purpose of voting in two critical U.S. Senate runoff elections on January the 5th. Now, anyone who visits Georgia temporarily and falsely claims to be a resident cheats the real residents of the state, no matter which side of the political aisle they favor. Well, here to talk to us about this uh, phenomenon is Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Well, good afternoon, Zach. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Now, when I hear that celebrities and politicians are urging people to visit Georgia, I might assume because they would know that this is an illegal act, uh, that they're just making offhand comments and they're not serious about it. Are there uh, celebrities and politicians who are seriously encouraging people uh, to fraudulently move to Georgia for the sake of voting in this uh, Georgia Senate runoff? Well, I'm like you, Georgina. I certainly hope it's uh, more an ignorance of the law, not really thinking through what they're saying, <laughs> intentional uh, encouragement to commit some type of fraud. But, you know, we have seen we've seen a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. We've seen celebrities like Andrew Yang uh, encouraging others to move to Georgia. And the fact is that you can't move to Georgia just to vote in the special election. Uh, only Georgia residents, somebody who moves to Georgia with the intent of making that their home, of staying there permanently, uh, would be entitled to register and vote in the upcoming elections. And so if someone moves there solely for the purposes of voting in these uh, elections with the intent of moving out afterwards, uh, they could be potentially violating Georgia law and could expose themselves to some pretty hefty criminal liability. Now, how how is it possible to determine what the intent was? Someone moves to Georgia, they vote, uh, and then they they move away. How is that tracked, and how do you determine what an individual's intent was? And I suppose the other question is, who determines whether or not a person is a, a legitimate resident or someone who is in the state for the sole purpose of influencing an election? Sure. And that's a great question, Georgine. And, you know, these types of issues come up in a couple of other contexts as well. You know, we see it come up a lot in the tax context where someone moves states and they owe a state income tax to two different states, or they may have a second home and split their time between two states. And so there's a question of how do you determine their residency for tax purposes? And so it's really the same type of analysis here. There's a number of factors that Georgia officials can look to. They can look to where's your business? Where do you own land? Where's your driver's license? Where are your cars registered? You know, even things that sound as silly as where are your doctors located? Where do you have a library card? Uh, you know, all of those types of things that would give an indication mm -hmm. that somewhere is your residence, your home. And so Georgia registrars uh, who are charged with, you know, registering someone to vote, they're certainly entitled to look at those factors, make a determination uh, as to whether or not somebody intends to become a permanent resident of Georgia uh, when, you know, basically deciding whether or not to, to issue a voter registration uh, to that individual. Is it the um, registrar alone who can challenge the uh, intent of someone who votes in Georgia's election? Well, it's not. So the registrar is is kind of the frontline uh, safeguard in this process. The registrar can certainly look at those factors. Uh, but then Georgia also has another provision uh, that essentially uh, allows other qualified voters uh, to challenge the, the qualifications of another voter in Georgia. And so not only will the registrars be on the lookout for this, but you also have essentially, you know, 
a grassroots army of voters potentially uh, looking out, you know, keeping an eye on, uh, you know, seeing whether someone did, in fact, uh, move to Georgia just to vote in these Senate elections. And if they think that's the case, then under Georgia law, uh, they're certainly entitled to challenge uh, that person's voter qualifications. Why is there a runoff uh, to begin with? Um, that's kind of an interesting question. And why does it matter so much nationally? I know the Senate, the balance in the Senate is uh, wh- where everyone's eyes are focused. But why is there a runoff and why does this particular, uh, these two races, why do they matter so much? Sure. Well, these two races matter because they potentially control the outcome of the Senate, who will control the Senate, whether it will be Republicans or uh, the Democrats. And so if the Republicans uh, win these elections, then they'll certainly be in, you know, in control of the Senate. If Democrats win both of these uh, Senate runoffs in Georgia, uh, assuming that, you know, Kamala Harris uh, becomes the vice president, uh, then she would be the, the tie-breaking vote in the Senate. And so the Democrats would control the Senate. Uh, and so it's really these elections are about who's going to control the U.S. Senate for at least the next two years and, and possibly longer. And so so that's why they're important. Um, and then the reason there's a runoff is because Georgia law has kind of an interesting quirk. Basically, if no candidate gets more than 50 percent of the vote, uh, then they have to go to a runoff. And so David Perdue, uh, he came close to getting the 50 percent in his runoff uh, in his election against John Ossoff, didn't quite get there. So he has to go to a runoff. And then the election involving Kelly Loeffler, uh, it was a really a three way field in that race. And so no one came close to getting the 50 percent of the vote there. And so basically, because no one got 50 percent of the vote in either one of those races, uh, they both now have to go to a runoff. Well, let's talk about what happens if someone decides to take the advice of Andrew Yang or the New Yorker journalist Eric Levitz, who suggested this is this is a great idea. Uh, what happens to someone who decides, yeah, I'm going to move to Georgia and my 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 motivation is to influence the outcome of the Senate race or races um, and to influence the balance uh, in the U.S. Senate? What's the consequence of violating the law if, in fact, you're caught? Right. If you're caught and you intend to violate the law, the consequences are fairly serious. Uh, Georgia takes this matter seriously. And in fact, you'd be committing uh, potentially multiple felonies. And just to give you an idea of the kind of criminal exposure that someone would have, the sentence for violating one of these uh, voting uh, you know, residency requirement statutes is a minimum of one year imprisonment up to a maximum of 10 years imprisonment and the potential of a maximum $100,000 fine. So this is something that obviously uh, Georgia takes very seriously as well they should. And you know, if someone knowingly violates the law, uh, then they would certainly be committing a, a very serious crime. I suppose the bottom line issue is that for residents of Georgia uh, to deprive real residents of the state of Georgia the right to select who will represent them in the U.S. Senate is the uh, the greatest offense uh, of someone coming into the state in order to uh, have an impact on the outcome. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And look, if someone does move into Georgia, intends to become a Georgian, a full-time resident, then certainly they are entitled to register and to cast their vote. But what we're really talking about are the any people that want to move in just to vote, just to affect the outcome of this Senate race. Uh, that's inappropriate. That's illegal. And I would hope uh, that no one is taking the advice uh, of Andrew Yang and, and trying to do something along those lines.
Now, the runoff is coming up on January 5th. Are we likely to know the outcome on January 5th, given that this is a, you know, two two way uh, races uh, in this runoff? Well, we certainly all hope so. It really depends on how close the races are, what the margins will be. You know, obviously, Georgia is involved in a recount count right mm-hmm. now uh, for the presidential election. And so I, hopefully Georgia has learned some lessons uh, from this, their election in November uh, that they can take uh, in conducting the runoff election. So I'm certainly hopeful uh, it may be a couple of days after the race before we know. But I think everyone is focused on trying to get quick accurate results uh, out of these elections. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Georgia will certainly be on my mind. Zach Smith, thanks thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> thanks so much for having me on. Take care. Again, uh, Zach Smith is Legal Fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey today acknowledged that the platform was wrong to block a New York Post report about Hunter Biden last month. Of course, it's easy to admit that now since it foiled the story being read or heard uh, during and prior to the election. Well, during a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing regarding censorship suppression and the 2020 elections, Dorsey and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg were asked about their company's decision to suppress a New York Post story about a laptop and emails reportedly belonging to Joe Biden's son, Hunter. Well, Twitter had blocked the sharing of the article, both publicly and in private, direct messages, while Facebook limited distribution of the article but did not completely block it. That, to me, seems like you're the ultimate editor, Committee Chairman Senator Lindsey Graham said. The editorial decision by the New York Post to run the story was overridden by Twitter and Facebook in uh, in different fashions to prevent its dissemination. Now, if that's not making an editorial decision, I don't know what would be. Well, Dorsey responded in his opening remarks, explaining that the platform made the decision to block the story in accordance with a 2018 policy against sharing hacked materials. We made a quick interpretation, used no other evidence that the material in the article were obtained through hacking. And according to our policy, we blocked them for being spread, Dorsey testified. Upon further consideration, we admitted this action was wrong and corrected it within 24 hours. Well, they always said it was within 24 hours, but it took uh, several days. And this was right before election, before uh, it could be found uh, on Twitter again. Well, the presidential election has continued into overtime in the courts on multiple fronts as the president declines to concede the contest to Democratic challenger Joe Biden. Well, even as states kept counting ballots, no state had certified results and lawsuits began to work their way through the courts. Major media outlets announced four days after Election Day that the former vice president had won the presidency by exceeding the necessary 270 electoral votes. Biden now leads by varying margins in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada and Wisconsin, most of which had showed Trump ahead um, on election night. Well, to explain what's happening in the courts, uh, here's an overview of the litigation and related to controversies in most of these contentious states, beginning with Pennsylvania. Well, the vote spread. Biden leads Trump by about 63,000 votes. And while that sounds like a huge number when you're talking about a national election, I suppose it's not quite as large, but it's sufficient to either win or lose a race. Well, a Pennsylvania appeals court delivered a victory Thursday to the Trump campaign by blocking mail-in votes by anyone who didn't provide required identification by the 9th of November, the deadline. 
Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, a Democrat, sought to give voters who mailed in ballots more time to fulfill the ID requirement beyond the deadline a full six days after Election Day. Well, shortly before the November 3rd election, Pennsylvania Secretary of State Kathy Bookvar, a Democrat who oversees elections in the state, pushed the date further back. Well, Commonwealth Court Judge Mary Hanna Leavitt, she ruled that Booker lacked the legal authority to change the date unilaterally. The votes were uh, not yet um, included in the Pennsylvania tally, but where Biden leads Trump by more than 54,000 votes or less than 1%. Well, the number of potential votes that wouldn't be counted was unknown on Thursday, but Philadelphia election officials said it was about 2,100 in the city, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer. Well, the Trump campaign's chief legal counsel said the pending lawsuit alone wouldn't tilt the election's outcome, but cumulatively could whittle Biden's lead to 0.5%, triggering an automatic recount under Pennsylvania law. Well, the Trump campaign is suing in both Pennsylvania state court and in federal courts. Among the most high-profile allegations has been that Republican monitors were kept too far away to be able to view election workers' ballot counting in several counties. The Trump campaign asked a federal court to block certification of the vote until officials follow proper procedures. U.S. District Judge Matthew Brand a presiding, is presiding rather over that case. Well, in a lawsuit filed in U.S. District Court for Middle District of Tennessee, the Trump campaign also asserted that Pennsylvania ran a two-tiered election system that favored mail-in ballots over in-person voting, held voters to different standards on whether their signatures checked against voter rolls, and allowed votes uh, received three days after Election Day to be counted without evidence of timely mailing, such as a postmark. Well, the Trump campaign's lawsuit alleges that violates uh, that this violates the Constitutional Equal Protection Clause and its Elections and Electors Clauses. Well, in a separate lawsuit filed independently of the Trump campaign, the Thomas More Center's Amistad Project filed a lawsuit alleging that Pennsylvania poll workers in heavily Democratic counties provided flawed mail-in ballots to Democrat campaign workers to contact workers about fixing their ballots. By state law, mail-in ballots must be uh, set aside after receipt until the election is complete. Well, Bookfar, Pennsylvania's Secretary of State, authorized counties to do this at about 8.38 p.m. on the 2nd of November, the day before Election Day. Former Kansas Attorney General Philip Klein, director of the Amistad Project, said large metropolitan counties had an advantage in adjusting to this late notice than smaller um, rural counties did. In other words, Klein said, blue counties had an advantage over red counties. Well, they were uh, activated, Klein said, um, uh, and operated um, uh, based on politics in Pennsylvania. They also stressed that there is uh, no rush at this and other litigation uh, should go forward. Uh, states have until the 8th of December to certify their electors. The Electoral College is set to meet on the 14th of December and Inauguration Day is January 20th. Uh, it's important to hit the pause button. This is not a constitutional crisis. He went on to say, we have to get this right. Election officials need to be accountable. Well, three Pennsylvania counties, Buck, Chester, and Delaware, reported inaccurate voter registration information to the federal government. Judicial Watch reported back in October. And more than 21,000 names on Pennsylvania's voter registration polls belong to voters who are dead, according to Public Interest Legal Foundation and Election Integrity Watchdog Group. Well, this doesn't mean all or any of those voters were recorded as having voted, only that Pennsylvania has been deficient in cleaning its voter rolls as required by the Help America Vote Act. 
Of the total number, at least 9,212 of those still listed as registered. Voters died in the past five years. At least 197 have been dead longer than 20 years. And then there's Michigan that has 16 electoral votes. The vote spread. Biden leads Trump by 147,000 votes. Michigan would be the most difficult state to flip, but the Trump campaign, as well as independent groups and voters, have raised several questions. Four Michigan voters filed a federal lawsuit alleging fraud and asking the election's results to uh, be excluded from three counties. The lawsuit called for scrapping ballots cast in Wayne, Washington, and Ingram counties, and that reportedly would uh, amount to 1.2 million votes. Well, among issues in the Detroit-Wayne County area, Republican election obser- observers rather couldn't see past cardboard um, put up by the uh, to cover the glass while the workers were counting the votes, depriving them of the freedom to see what was actually happening. And one expert on the case noted an election lawyer a former vice chairman of the Republican National Committee and former chief legal counsel for the National Right to Life Committee uh, was on the scene. Uh, Bopp has been part of the legal team in several U.S. Supreme Court cases, including two major free speech cases, citizens, uh, well, we won't even go into all of that. But anyway, he was on site um, with these um, counting efforts as well. And the Trump campaign uh, filed a suit in U.S. Uh, District Court for the Western District of Michigan that includes sworn affidavits from more than 100 individuals alleging misconduct in counting and processing ballots. The lawsuit cites eyewitness claims under oath of fraud and intimidation, mostly from poll challengers who uh, were observed counting Uh, at one of the centers in Detroit. That included examples such as seeing about 50 ballots being fed multiple times into a ballot scanner, so more than once, seeing provisional ballots placed in a tabulation box, and seeing ballots received after Election Day being backdated and counted. Um, Again, these were witnesses under oath who said this is what they uh, saw. The uh, Detroit Free Press reported that 134 Republican poll challengers were allowed into uh, one of the centers where this was being witnessed at that time. Then there's Nevada, where there are six electoral votes. Uh, The vote spread between Biden and Trump. Uh, Biden leads Trump by more than 35,000 votes. And of the six states in question, Nevada is the only one that Trump didn't carry in 2016. He came in close in 2020. The campaign there alleges that at least 3,000 out-of-state residents voted in Nevada. Lawyers with the campaign sent a list of suspect voter information to the U.S. uh, Attorney General asking for a federal inquiry. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at what some of the uh, challenges in which states are pending and uh, what difference it might make in the outcome of the still to be called election. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're just talking about some of the states that are yet to be resolved in terms of their election. And we ended with Nevada with six electoral votes. The vote spread between Biden and Trump is more than 35,000 votes in favor of Biden. And of the six states in question, Nevada is the only one that Trump didn't carry in 2016. He came pretty close in 2020. And of course, things are yet to be resolved. Well, the Trump campaign alleges that at least 3,000 out-of-state residents voted in Nevada. Lawyers with the campaign sent a list of suspect voter information to the U.S. Attorney General William Barr asking for a federal inquiry. And the letter to um, 
The attorney general said specifically, we have initially identified 3,062 individuals who appear to have improperly cast mail ballots in the election. We verified this by cross-referencing the names and addresses of voters with a national change of address database. Of Of course, voter fraud is a serious federal felony, one that cuts to the heart of our representative democracy. We understand that these are serious allegations and we do not make them lightly. The American Civil Liberties Union of Nevada countered that some of the names in question are those of members of the armed services who currently live outside the state. Well, Clark County, home of Las Vegas and key to Biden's victory in the state, had a voter registration rate of 102 percent of eligible voters, according to the Judicial Watch. So there, again, is one of the areas that's being looked into. The other state, Georgia, uh, we just uh, spoke with Zach Smith earlier in the program about Georgia. They carry 16 electoral votes. Uh, The vote spread currently is 14,000 votes, Biden leading Trump. Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, he announced that the state would conduct a hand recount of the ballots in the presidential election. That has now been underway. He said at the time, with the margin being so close, it will require a full hand count, hand recount rather, in each county. He is a Republican. He said uh, it will be an audit, a recount, and re-canvas all at once. Well, the recount likely will be finished by the 20th of November. So sit back and wait. Uh, In Wisconsin, they carry 10 electoral votes. The vote spread between Biden and Trump, 20,000 votes. In Wisconsin, the counties of Rock and Milwaukee are facing scrutiny. The state assembly speaker, Robin Voss, a Republican, called for an investigation by the Assembly Committee on Campaigns and Elections, saying if there's real evidence of fraud, I want it to come forward to be able to be investigated. If there's not, it validates the process and we should be fully supportive of it. Uh, Voss said, according to the Journal Times newspaper, adding, I would rather guarantee that everyone at the end of the day has certainty that the election was conducted fairly because we do a thorough and thorough investigation as opposed to trusting a bunch of bureaucrats in Madison saying, look, we did just fine. We've also referred to absentee ballots from Milwaukee that were not reported until 4 a.m. on the 4th of November, 21 hours after polls opened. Election workers can begin counting ballots after the polls open on Election Day in Wisconsin. We've also referred to the inefficiency of Milwaukee's central counting of absentee ballots. Well, Milwaukee County Clerk George Christensen, he responded to that uh, continuing operation. Um, he said it was con- incredibly efficient in that it was able to count nearly 170,000 ballots in less than 24 hours. Well, Christensen noted that the law prohibits counting ballots until Election Day. However, the Journal Times of Racine, Wisconsin, reported that election workers counted about 92 percent of the city of Madison's 121,000 absentee ballots by 6 p.m. Election Day. And the city of Racine reported all its returns a few hours before Milwaukee that finished at 4 a.m. on November 4th, the morning after the election. Uh, other Republicans, including presidential's, uh, the president's son, um, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, they raised questions about uh, the Associated Press's first calling Rock County uh, for their father before the news service uh, reversed the call, uh, you know, questioning whether or not there was some nefarious uh, thing behind that. And finally, Arizona with ele- 11 electoral uh, votes is still undecided. Votes spread uh, Biden leading Trump by 11,000 votes. 
The Trump campaign there dropped a lawsuit in Arizona that claimed Arizona poll workers incorrectly rejected votes cast in person on Election Day. The campaign's attorney wrote late Thursday that since the close of yesterday's hearing, the tabulation of votes statewide has rendered unnecessary a judicial ruling as to the presidential electors. Well, Biden appeared to have flipped Arizona, a traditionally Republican state where the president had criticized two former GOP senators, Jeff Flake and uh, John McCain. That may not have sat well with uh, Arizona voters. However, Arizona Attorney General Mark uh, Bronovich, a Republican, said Wednesday that correcting the irregularity likely would uh, affect only 200 votes. There's no evidence there is uh, uh, there are no facts, rather, that would lead anyone to believe that the election results will change. So those are the six states that are still uh, in play. And again, it's an uphill battle for the president to flip enough states to issue enough challenge to change the outcome of the election. Again, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and Wisconsin. Well, Dominion Voting Systems has refuted claims about being biased toward Democratic officials during the uh, November 3rd election, including allegations about a raid on a server in Germany, as well as ties to Senator Dianne Feinstein. However, it did note that it made a donation to the Bill and Hillary Clinton-operated Clinton Foundation and did not dispute that a former staffer of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was hired as a lobbyist. Now, there's been some question. I mean, there's uh, in an election, there are always questions about whose loyalty lies where and whether or not there's an impartial um, actor. Dominion is uh, responsible for the vast majority of voting systems used across the country. Well, in a lengthy statement last week, the Colorado-based voting systems provider first refuted that it has no ties uh, to Smartmatic, another voting software maker. But it did note that the two firms worked together in the Philippines and said it uh, bought some assets from the Smartmatic-linked Sequoia about 10 years ago, adding that the two companies had legal disputes. Some Trump campaign officials made uh, claims in recent interviews that Smartmatic had links to Dominion, again, the, the, the voting machine uh, maker for most of the systems across the United States. Well, Dominion has been at the center of the controversy since Election Day after uh, Antrim County, Michigan, showed Joe Biden beating President Donald Trump before the results were reversed with county officials saying the error was due to the county clerk not updating the software. Well, the firm confirmed that it made a donation during the Clinton Global Initiative meeting in 2014, but it asserted that it has no company ownership relationships with any member of the Pelosi family, the Feinstein family, or the Clinton Global Initiative, Smartmatic, um, Sync, or ties to Venezuela. Um, again, they've been under scrutiny since the election took place as well. Well, Jarrett Stepman points out that uh, contesting an election result in court isn't the end of democracy, which is what some are saying. And it really depends on who's contesting the outcome. Um, when uh, uh, former vice president, whose name has just escaped me, um, when Clinton's running mate, I can't think of his name. Anyway, when he contested the outcome of the uh, of the election, um, it was OK by some quarters. It was. Uh, overreach by others. So contesting the election results in uh, in court isn't the end of democracy, Jarrett Stepman points out. This is a process that needs to be undertaken for the confidence of the American people in the outcome, and it will be resolved, and there will emerge a winner, and one of the two candidates will be the president come January on Inauguration Day. Well, is a disputed presidential election the end of democracy as we know it? That's what many pundits and members of the legacy media are claiming as the president has challenged election results in a number of states, both legally and rhetorically. Well, it seems that much of the media um, 
have um, now insist that voters voter fraud never happens, that it's equally impossible for an election to be stolen or tainted in any way, and that going a few weeks with two rival candidates both declaring victory, including one they really don't like, means we are witnessing the end of America as a free country. What's amazing that this is the case after countless Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, insisted that Trump colluded with Russia to steal the 2016 election, a story that most major media outlets ran with uh, for years without providing any hard evidence. It's also amusing to see so many in the media praising former Georgia State Representative Stacey Abrams for her work to flip the Peach State into a Democrat column in 2020. Well, Abrams lost the 2018 Georgia gubernatorial election to Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican in a race Kemp won by almost 50 55,000 votes. Uh, Abrams insists the voter suppression is the only reason Republicans came out ahead and never conceded defeat, yet she has received literally glowing profiles in the Washington Post and countless other media outlets. Whatever the results of Trump's legal challenges, the situation hardly portends a slip into dictatorship. Well, truth be told, those uh, sorts of electoral disputes aren't even uncommon in our history. Americans have been uh, blessed with a marvelous political system that stood the test of time, and it's been tested. Not every election has been entirely free and fair, and they certainly haven't all gone smoothly. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, a book, Tainted by Suspicion, The Secret Deals and Electoral Chaos of Disputed Presidential Elections, to give us some historic context. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you tomorrow is our annual Transitional Youth Radiothon. You're going to want to join us. To find out what's happening with transitional youth under this very uh, unique set of circumstances that has most of us at home more than we would perhaps care to be, uh, we'll be uh, talking about what their specific needs are and what God is doing during this season, um, which you know really reflects his heart for those street youth um, in the city of Portland and around the metro area. So that's coming up tomorrow on the Georgine Rice Show. We were talking about um, whether or not the fact that this election has been Uh, challenged if that uh, represents the end of democracy as we know it. Well, quite the opposite is the case. And to put it into uh, some historic context, Fred Lucas is the author of Tainted by Suspicion. It's the secret deals and election chaos of disputed presidential elections. Uh, He wrote for the Daily Signal that there have been at least five highly contested presidential elections. In 1876, election between Democrat Samuel Tilden and Republican Rutherford B. Hayes was perhaps the most dramatic example. Much like 2020, the turnout for the election was incredibly high, a U.S. record of 82 percent of eligible voters. But there was widespread, often violent suppression of black voters who then were largely Republican in the South. And ballot stuffing was common throughout the country. Well, Tilden supporters literally called for blood in their candidate was if their candidate was not installed in the White House. Does sound vaguely familiar. Neither candidate conceded defeat until just before Inauguration Day, which at the time was in early March. So the the country spent over four months without knowing who the president would be. Well, the mess was only resolved by a last minute so-called corrupt bargain between Democrats and Republicans that handed Hayes the presidency in exchange for ending Reconstruction in the South. 
Uh, that may seem like ancient news from a far off and alien time, but one doesn't really have the have to dig too deep into political history to find examples of contested elections and candidates refusing to concede. In 1960, in the election, it was a narrow race between Senator John F. Kennedy of Massachusetts, Vice President um, Richard Nixon, and it was uh, rife with accusations that Democratic political machines in Chicago, in particular, manufactured votes for Kennedy. Hundreds of election officials in Illinois were indicted, but only a handful were convicted in 1962 after admitting to witness tampering in Chicago's 28th Ward. Nixon did, in fact, organize to challenge the election results in Illinois and a number of other states, but ultimately decided to concede for the sake of the country and his political career. He still had opportunities in the future. Nixon was a young man and had every intention of running for president again, which he did in 1968 winning a three-way race, as you know. Well, it took then-Vice President Al Gore more than five weeks to acknowledge defeat in the 2000 election to then-Texas Governor George W. Bush. Of course, it was considered fine then. Um, He decided by just, uh, it was decided by just 537 votes in Florida. That was uh, after more than a month of legal battles, recounts, and the famed Bush versus Gore Supreme Court case that ultimately delivered the election to Bush. Gore hardly went away without a fight, calling for selective recounts in heavily Democratic Florida counties while attempting to block the inclusion of military absentee ballots. And when all avenues for victory had been closed, Gore finally called it quits on December 13th, note, December 13th, 2000, over a month after the November 7th election. Now, many Democrats around the country refused to accept that Bush had been legitimately elected or re-elected in 2004. And what we are um, seeing here in 2020 is hardly unique, nor does it signal the end of democracy. To the contrary, this is democracy in action in all its messiness. Well, the way to quell electoral disputes is not to simply expect politicians to immediately concede close and hotly contested races, but to ensure that our voting system is safe and secure and that it's uh, designed to minimize impropriety, fraud, and unintentional errors that could throw elections into dispute. Now, maybe elected officials should take that more seriously in 2022 and beyond. For now, we're just called to be patient to maybe look back on history and say, ah, this isn't the first time this has happened. Somehow, our constitutional republic survived. Well, President-elect Joe Biden on Tuesday announced nine senior staffers he's going to work with in the White House after he is inaugurated on the 20th, if in fact that's the case. The list includes some longtime Biden aides and advisors who worked with the president-elect during or presumed presidential uh, elect uh, during his uh, decades as a senator and his eight years as vice president in the Obama administration. And the group also includes some of the top members of Biden's presidential campaign. He said, I am proud to announce additional members of my senior team who will help us build back better than before. America faces great challenges and they bring diverse perspectives and a shared commitment to tackling these challenges and emerging on the other side as stronger, more unified nation, Biden said in a statement, Ron Klain, whom Biden named last week as his incoming White House chief of staff, highlighted that President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris have an ambitious and urgent agenda for action. The team we have already started uh, to assemble will enable us to meet the challenge, uh, face challenges rather, facing our country on day one, end quote. Well, announced on Tuesday, our Biden-Harris campaign manager, Jen O'Malley-Dillon, as Deputy White House Chief of Staff, Senior Biden Campaign Strategist, and longtime political advisor Mike Donilon as senior advisor to the president, a Biden-Harris campaign chairman and longtime Biden advisor and aide Steve Reschetti as counselor to the president 
and Biden-Harris General Counsel Dana Remus as counsel to the president. Also announced are Representative Cedric Richmond of Louisiana, a Biden campaign national co-chair, a senior advisor to the president and director of the White House Office of Public Engagement. rather. Biden-Harris Deputy Campaign Manager Julie Chavez-Rodriguez, who served as chief of staff to Senator Harris's presidential campaign as director of the White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs, and Biden Campaign Traveling Chief of Staff and longtime Biden aide Annie uh, to Massini as director of the Oval Office Operations. Um, Anthony Bernal, a deputy campaign manager and chief of staff to Jill Biden during the campaign, will serve as senior advisor to the incoming first lady. Julissa uh, Reynoso Pantaleon, a partner in the law firm Winston & Strawn, will serve as the U.S. ambassador to Uruguay and a deputy assistant secretary of state during the Obama administration, will serve as Jill Biden's chief of staff. O'Malley Dillon took to Twitter moments after the announcements to say working for Joe Biden is absolutely the honor of my life. We have hard things to do. And with his leadership, we can do them together for the American people. Well, progressive Democrats on Tuesday slammed the president elect. Um, his appointment of Representative Cedric Richmond and Steve Ricchetti to the White House Post, calling them unacceptable. Justice De- uh, Democrats Executive Director Alexandra Rojas blasted Biden's appointments claiming they were corporate-friendly insiders. If Joe Biden continues making corporate-friendly appointments to the White House, he will risk quickly fracturing the hard-earned goodwill his team built with progressives to defeat Donald Trump. A Biden administration dominated by corporate-friendly insiders like Steve Reschetti and Cedric Richmond will not help the president-elect usher in the most progressive Democratic administration in generations, which just highlights the uh, the challenge that a Biden administration, and I say A rather than D until we have a final uh, confirmed outcome, um, the, the challenges that that administration will face with the progressive arm of the Democrat Party. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow for our annual Transitional Youth Radiothon. Their needs are great, particularly given our current circumstance. So please uh, say a prayer and join us tomorrow and ask God how you might help this uh, vital organization in our community. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.